Amen. There we go. Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And uh, as was already said, uh, so excited to be here with us this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series, Conversations with God. And uh, this is our fifth week walking through this topic, fifth week. And uh, we have covered a lot of ground in five weeks. Again, last week we took a little break from that as you guys got to learn about Jonah and that amazing story in the Old Testament. And so this morning we're getting back to Conversations with God. we got one more week after this week. Next week is our last week of Conversations with God. And uh, I hope that that's not true in our daily life. I hope that even though the series is coming to a close next week, that we'll continue to have conversations with Him uh, in our daily lives as well as we gather for worship. Amen. Uh, we need to be communicating with the Lord. We need to be in conversation with Him. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes my prayer life, I don't look at it as a conversation. Uh, I don't look at it as time to spend to grow in a relationship with my Savior. Sometimes our prayer life can look more like what? More like demands, right? More like wish lists, okay? I ask my kids all the time, what do you want for Christmas? Make a list. What do you want for your birthday? Make a list. They put a lot of stuff on there. There's no way they're getting that stuff. And I'm just saying my son put on his birthday wish five times cell phone. There was 31 things on his list. He put cell phone five times. I was like, you're not getting a phone unless you got a what? Parents? Job. That's right. See, all the parents know. Testify. We're in church. Um, no, we, we got to look at our prayer lives not as me going to God like he's a genie that I just get to ask what I want. and He'll do it because I said at the very end, in Jesus' name. We go to God and we have a conversation with them. Now, God wants to hear from us in our requests, right? God wants to know what we're going through. And, and if we are praying for someone to be healed from something or we have a, a desire or a need, we bring that before him. It's not wrong to do that. But if that's the majority of your prayer life and it doesn't start and end with praise to him, man, this last song, man, if you think on the words of that song, that why should I gain from his reward? Why would I benefit in any way, shape, or form after he did all that he did, going to a cross, dying on that cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb, and rising again the third day? How in the world can I benefit from that? I did nothing, absolutely nothing to merit salvation. God didn't save you to make you a little bit better. God saved you to take you from death to life. There is no, well, I was kind of a bad person. No, 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 there's no such thing. There's only two kinds of people in the world according to God's word. We don't like this, but it's his word. There's those in Christ and those outside of Christ. There is no middle ground. There is no, well, I kind of go, no, there is no kind of. You either are in Christ and saved and redeemed by his precious blood, not because of your works, but by grace are you saved. Or you're outside of Christ, and the Bible says that it breaks the Father's heart. As Maria man, what an amazing kind of introduction to that song. It breaks his heart. I believe it's Jeremiah chapter 2, I think, where God talks about his love for Israel. And he poses a question to them. He says, what did I do that would cause you to leave me? What did I do that was so bad that you would run from me and try to go to broken cisterns for your support and for your needs to be met? What have I done that's so bad that you can't trust me? Didn't I do this and didn't I lead you by your hand out of Egypt and out of bondage? Didn't I provide for you and do miracles for you? Didn't I show you my love and yet you walk away willingly? And what, what did I do? 
Do you hear an angry God there? Do you hear a, a God that's like, I can't wait for you to mess up so I can smite you and strike you down? I hear a God whose heart is broken. A father who says, I just want to know you. And so as we've been going through this Conversations with God series, I pray that one thing is becoming more and more clear. It's less and less about you and more and more about him. We talked about the first week, we talked about this idea of faith. Your faith is not about you. Your faith is not a blab it and grab it, that you can just say it, speak it, and you get a million dollars. It's not how it works. But that'll preach. That'll preach. I just listened to a message. It's from a few years ago. And I usually don't do this, but I want to just encourage you, if you listen to someone like a Joel Olstein, and I know you're like, don't you go there. I'm going there. You know why? Because I just listened to a message that's the most viewed, it's either the most viewed sermon on YouTube or one of the most viewed videos on YouTube. And in the entire sermon, 30-minute sermon, he mentions Jesus zero times. Do you know what he says? Get up every day, look in the mirror and say, I am blessed. I am beautiful. I am attractive. I am prosperous. I am strong. He says in the sermon, don't get in the mirror and say, I am weak. Don't speak that in your life. Speak strength into your life. Paul says, I will boast in my weakness. Because then Christ is glorified. Like I said, I don't like naming people and stuff like that. Because I know we all have different flavors of speakers that we enjoy. And I know you can say, well, I've heard sermons by Joel and he mentions Jesus' name. That's fine. But I'm going to tell you what, when somebody's entire, if you can preach a whole message and never mention Jesus, why is that? Maybe because if you mention Jesus, you realize what you're preaching goes contrary to Jesus' teaching. Guys, we have got to be aware of what's going on around us. Your faith isn't about you. We talked about giving. Your giving's not about you. It's about the Lord, about your relationship with him and how he is blessing you so you give to the Lord's work. Your motives, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Your motivation for why you do what you do isn't based in you. It's based in him and in his word. Glorifying God in all things. What does Paul say? Whatever you eat, drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean? My motive for everything I do. That means this. Every time you wake up and look at your spouse in the morning, you don't think about what can this person do for me today. It's how can I glorify God by serving this person today. Every time you get on social media, it's not about how can I blast everybody possible so I get attention and people feel bad for me. It's about how can I use this platform to glorify God today? And you might say, well, come on, what if you put something silly on there? Like, I love Chinese food, but I've gotten some, some Facebook posts that concern me. I think it was like a cat inside of a bag, and it said, when your Chinese takeout's undercooked. I'm not going to name names, but it was hilarious, Vic. I appreciate you sending that to me. <laughs> and you might say, come on, how's that glorifying God? Here's the point. It's when he sent, do you know why he sent that to me? Because he knew it would make me laugh and give me a little bit of joy and uplift me a little bit. It was just a joking thing to do. But listen, when we get on there and our mindset is more about me first and not how can I bring joy to someone else's life today? How can I encourage somebody in the things of God today? Man, we've got to be so on guard against that because our motives matter. You do realize God is much more concerned about why you do what you do than what you do. The Pharisees were awesome at doing the right things. They were great at it. So much so, Jesus said, man, you look really good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead bones. A cemetery, 
There's tombstones that are so beautiful. I told my wife, I said, if you ever pay that much money for a tombstone, I'll come back and kill you. Like, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> Man, put me in a shoebox, put me out back. I don't care, okay? Seriously, it does, to me, and I know I'm not trying to offend anybody. If you want a tombstone, that's fine. But for me, man, I'm not there. If he can form me of the dust of the ground, he can go get some ashes and put me back together if he wants to. Man, listen, it's just, we see these beautiful tombstones and all these beautiful things in the cemetery, and that's great. But that's the description Jesus gives for the religious. He says, man, you look really good, but inside you're dead. And here's the catch. You don't even know it. You think you're good because your motives are impure, but your actions look good. So your motives matter. And then last time, a couple weeks ago, we talked about kind of a good news, bad news message. I gave you the bad news first. This morning, we're going to talk about the good news. Uh, last time we met, we talked about what would God want us to know about a place called hell. And we discovered from God's word, not John's opinions, that the word of God, Christ's own teaching, bear out that there is a literal place called hell that is a literal place of punishment and consequence for the literal sins that we commit. And I said it before, so many people are like, well, no, 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 no. I, I, I did bad things, I sinned, and nothing happened. Romans chapter 2 seems to suggest that we're storing up for a day of wrath. Every sin we commit outside of the forgiven blood of Christ. Everything we do not being forgiven by Christ. So if you live and die in your sins apart from Christ, you will pay for those sins, Jesus says. God says, the word of God says, in a literal place called hell. And that's the bad news. But here's the good news. It's up to you whether you go or not because he's done all that is needed so you don't have to go there. He's done all that's needed so you can have your sins forgiven and be washed of every wrongdoing. And I pose this question because some people in this, the last, well, maybe it's been forever because I have found some authors from even the 1800s that question the idea that if hell is a real place, then God is not a loving God. That's actually been a very common kind of a, a thought to kind of go against the idea of hell. And they would say things like this, if God is so loving, why would he send anyone to hell? It's the wrong question. The question should be, if God is so holy, how could he possibly forgive and save someone like me? That's the question we need to ask. Not how could God dare send someone to hell, as though we sit above the creator God, as though we're above God to judge him. As though we're there to tell him who he can show mercy to and who he can't. Are you kidding me? I mean, he is God. He is holy and he is righteous and he is gracious and he is loving. And all of his attributes are on display for us to worship. And so we asked that question last week or two weeks ago. But this morning, we're going to pose a question about what would God want us to know about a place called heaven? What would God want us to know about a place called heaven I want you to look at John chapter 14. Now, we're not going to do an exhaustive reading of every single verse that speaks to the idea of heaven. But I want to give you guys kind of a, a snapshot of just some thoughts on this topic of heaven. John chapter 14 and verse 1, one of my favorite passages in the life of Christ. It says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Now, what do we call Thomas here? What's he demonstrating, we would say? Man, poor Thomas got picked on, didn't he? 
You know, we read, he's one of the disciples. Some of the disciples we don't read anything about except for their name. We read their name. There's not much information given with them. Thomas is one. He's kind of in the middle. There's a few verses and interactions with Jesus. You can literally count them on one hand. And this poor guy, could you imagine if somebody took four instances of your life in your relationship with Christ and that defined your entire testimony for your life, how would you end up looking? I don't know that I'd come out looking all that good. And we pick on guys like Thomas. Oh, there goes Thomas doubting again. Like, you've, like we've never doubted God. Some of us wake up in the morning and we start doubting him. We're barely out of bed and we're doubting God. We're doubting, could God really do this? Could God really do that? Do you know why Thomas was asking this question? It wasn't doubt. It was he had a hunger and a desire to be wherever Jesus was. And when you read the life of Thomas and other passages, you get that implication that he says, I want to be with you. I will go with you. You know, when they went back to Lazarus, all the disciples were like, let's not go there because it's, it's kind of a rough time down there near Jerusalem. We don't want to go. And Thomas says, if we die, we die, but we'll go with Christ. That's doubting Thomas, by the way, that we pick on. He was willing to lay his life down long before Peter ever said he would. And so this is the man. He says, I just want to be with you. That's all I care about. I want to make sure I know. Isn't it the most important question in human life how to gain eternal life? I mean, isn't that really, how do I know I'm going to be with God forever in his heaven? Isn't that the most important question we could ask of Christ? Look what he says here in verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I'm going to ask that we would just pray real quick and ask God to bless his word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we talk to this topic, Lord, that we would just, not even in the background, but in the forefront, glorify you in all of this. The fact that we can even talk about going to a place called heaven is an amazing, amazing gift of your grace. So may we, no matter what we're coming in here with today, may we praise you because we have been gifted the opportunity through Christ to spend eternity with you in your heaven. And so, Father, we thank you for this, and we thank you for giving yourself for us on the cross, for doing all that you did for us so that we could have a relationship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus explains to his disciples that when he leaves, he is preparing a place for them. That's a pretty cool verse, pretty cool thing to think about. But this idea of preparing a place, what is the reason or purpose in that he is doing this, that he is leaving them, that he is going to prepare a place for them? What is the purpose that he even came to us to begin with? Why did he even come to this earth? He tells us in the passage. And the answer is truly shocking. If it's not shocking to you, then you've grown apathetic in understanding who you really are and who Christ really is and what your salvation really represents. He says this in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Why? That where I am, there you may be also. When someone places their faith and trust in Christ, they are granted eternal life that begins at the very moment of, uh, the moment of salvation. The very moment you trust in Christ as your Savior and repent of your sins and confess Him as Lord, you are given eternal life. That begins again at the very moment of salvation. Jesus was clear. There is only one way to the Father, and it's through Christ. He says, Jesus says, there's only one way through Christ. We read it before two weeks ago. He says, whoever believes in me has life, but whoever doesn't believe in me is condemned already. 
Now, this is the life he's talking about, his presence. Salvation has tremendous blessings for us in this life, which would be reason enough to praise him. Think about that. If you could only praise him for what he's done in your life in this side of heaven, it's enough, isn't it? The grace and the peace and the joy and the support and the love that you've benefited from salvation. That's enough to praise him alone. But then he says, but when you leave this world, I'll take you into my heaven. And you will dwell with me for all eternity. Wow. Man, that's enough to praise him. God doesn't stop with just this life. He allows us to spend all of eternity in his presence in heaven. And so I want to talk a little bit about this idea of heaven and this idea that Jesus says, I want you with me. Does that, I, you don't have to answer out loud, but does that shock you in some way? Just think on that. Think about who you are. Think about what you've done before Christ or even with Christ and in Christ. He says, I want you with me. That shocks me. That is, I don't get that kind of love. I don't get that kind of grace. I don't get that kind of, that kind of, involvement in my life where he wants to just be with me. We totally get conditional love, don't we? You guys get conditional love, right? What's conditional love? You do for me, I do for you. You love me, I love you. You, you serve me, I serve you. You don't serve me, I don't serve you. You don't love me, I don't have a reason to love you. I don't have to love you. Jesus says, no, no, no. I loved you before the foundations of the world were laid. Could you imagine that for a moment? He says, I knew at the beginning of all of creation, before creation, exactly what was going to happen. And I loved you in spite of it and because of it. Man, his love is amazing. It truly is beyond measure, beyond understanding. So what do we want to know about heaven? As we understand about how Jesus says, I've come from this place so that I could do this for you. I'm leaving, going and preparing a place for you. And then I'll bring you to myself. There's something after this life. There's more than what we see here. Heaven is a literal place. To say it bluntly, heaven is for real. The word of God is clear that heaven is a literal place where God sits on his throne and rules over all creation. Now, if I asked you to close your eyes and picture heaven, some of you have done this and tried to think about what would it be like. What do you think the number one thing people think of is heaven? Give me, give me an, an answer. What do you think? Clouds. Thank you. Somebody said clouds. Okay. I don't know why we always picture heaven as like this white, poofy cloud, blue skies, gorgeous, like just amazing place, right? Somebody said Christ. Absolutely we think of Christ in heaven. But I would think most people say, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to have my own little cloud. It's going to be great. We're going to like float around, right? It's, we don't know. does Thou shalt get a cloud. It doesn't say that, right? Okay? By the way, you don't become an angel either. You don't get wings, okay? Two different beings, angels and humanity. You don't become an angel. That's another kind of misconception that people have believed because of a, it's a wonderful life, right? Every time a bell rings, yeah. By the way, the guy in that movie that's the angel, send me a different angel. Like, that guy was not good, Man, no, seriously, don't all that. That angel was horrible. He didn't do nothing, man. Anyway, we're not getting into that, the theology of It's a Wonderful Life. We're not doing that, okay? But no, I love the movie. Okay, I love the movie. I'm just teasing. I love the movie. 
I've seen, I saw it a lot as a child. It's my mom's favorite movie. Every Christmas we'd watch it over and over again. It was great. When you think about this, we have these, all these ideas about heaven. Well, I get to heaven to get my wings, or I get to heaven to get a cloud. Now, we don't know a lot of details about heaven, but I want to walk this out a little bit because we do know some things about heaven, or at least the emphasis or the points that we see revealed about heaven. We all have a lot of thoughts about heaven, and there are plenty of people that have no belief, listen to this now, no belief in a literal hell, but bank on a literal heaven. Think about that. No belief in a literal hell, but every belief in a literal heaven. And they're going there just because. You believe you're going to have any die? For sure. Or they'll say, I hope so. Well, what do you mean you hope so? Well, I hope I've done enough good to outweigh the bad. Well, I believe God is a loving God and everyone goes to heaven. So we all believe in a place called heaven, but we don't really believe in a literal place called hell. At least not, maybe not all of us or some of us at times. And I understand that. We talked about it two weeks ago. Man, hell is not a fun thing to think about. It's not a, a good, joyful memory to think about, or thought to think about, rather. Not a memory, but a thought. But why is it so vital that we dwell on the things that Jesus says about a place called hell? Because it's sobering. And it keeps our thoughts focused on the mission. Do you know why I believe God doesn't give us a whole lot of details about heaven? Because we'd be so heavenly minded, we'd be no earthly good. We'd spend all of our days dwelling on the heaven that's coming and missing the mission before us. See, we can dwell on heaven, we can think on heaven, we can think of its beauty and its wonder that's revealed somewhat to us in Scripture. But the more vital thing, as we're going to talk about, is we better be staying on mission. Because we've got a job to do. We've got a mission, a commission before us. No belief in a literal hell, but every belief in a literal heaven. Isn't it amazing that the same Bible that reveals the existence of a wonderful and beautiful place called heaven is the same book that teaches in the existence of a place called hell? How can you read this book and get heaven but not understand there's a place called hell? Now listen, I want to say this honestly. If you're here and you're like, I don't know about that, please have a conversation. I would love to talk to you. And we can maybe we'll get to the end of the conversation and agree to disagree, but I would love to talk to you about this because I want you to know, man, this is what God's Word teaches, I believe. And so one, we welcome. We welcome heaven because we believe we deserve eternal peace and rest. This is the truth. In humanity, most will welcome heaven because at our core, we really believe we deserve heaven. We're not really that bad. We're not really that messed up. We kind of deserve that as a reward for this life and all the good that we've done. But we don't accept heaven or hell because we don't believe we receive that. We, we've deserved that. I think I'm good enough to deserve heaven, but I'm not bad enough to deserve hell. That's kind of where our mindset goes, humanly speaking. But we know heaven is a real place, and we can praise God for that. Amen? And we can be excited about a place called heaven and know that in Christ we don't spend eternity in a place called hell. And that's a joyful thing to think on. So how do we know heaven is for real? We know it by his word. I want you to go back just a few chapters to John chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to unpack this verse a little bit over the next few minutes, but I want to look at this verse. John chapter 3 and verse 13. Listen to what Jesus says here. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And Jesus seems to believe there's a literal place called heaven. And it's a place where he came from. It's a place that he descended from. And it's a place that he returned to. And he says, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. 
Now you might say, what about the angels? They come and go. He's speaking specifically about the God-man, Christ Jesus, humanity. There's no human being, according to Jesus, that has ever ascended to heaven that didn't first descend from heaven. Now, does that mean when we die, we don't go to heaven? No, he's talking about this idea that we can come and go from heaven, from the earth to heaven as we please. He's saying, no, no, the only one that could do that is the Son of Man, God himself. But our Christian culture has been overwhelmed with accounts of people that have apparently traveled to heaven and come back to tell about it. But do these books carry any real weight? Let's just think on this for a moment. Think critically. Think biblically for a second. Let's see how these stack up. And again, I'm not trying to pick on certain things. And if you've read these books and you like these books, I'm not here to rip on you. I'm just merely telling you what I see these books portraying and what I see the Word of God portraying. One of the most popular books on this topic is Heaven is for Real. Heaven is for Real. I think there's even a movie about it. Where a four-year-old boy goes to heaven. As a couple of years, uh, it came out a couple years ago. And that book, as of 2015, sold 7 million copies. Let that soak in for a moment. 7 million copies. In this book, the four-year-old boy speaks of sitting on Jesus' lap. Angels who come and sing to him, to the boy. And he saw the Holy Spirit, which he describes as kind of blue. Another popular one, not to be mistaken with heaven is for real, is called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Kevin Malarkey. Yeah, Malarkey is his name. You can't make it up. Malarkey says, (laughs) Malarkey says, the boy makes multiple trips to heaven and has seen Satan many times. He describes Satan as having bony arms and bony legs with a very strange face with rotten teeth. This is how he, a six-year-old boy, describes his experiences with heaven and seeing Satan. These two are not to be mistaken for my journey to heaven, when I, what I saw and how it changed my life. Flight to heaven, 30 minutes in heaven, nine days in heaven. All of these best sellers. David Platt said it well when he said this There is money to be made in peddling fiction about the afterlife as nonfiction in the world of Christian publishing today. There is money to be made in peddling fiction about the afterlife as nonfiction in Christian publishing today. But come on, what's wrong with these books? I mean, mean, isn't it good to talk about heaven? Isn't it good to get people thinking about heaven? Isn't it good that humans that don't know Christ, people that are in sin, are picking up books like Heaven is for Real and reading about a place called heaven and, and thinking about a place called heaven? Maybe it'll spark something in them. And what does the Bible say about heaven? Four biblical authors, listen now, four biblical authors give us insight of heaven. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John, the only four authors to ever speak directly in vision of heaven, all experienced the prophetic vision of heaven. Notice this, not one of them journeyed to heaven and came back. As far as like a near-death experience, they died, went to heaven and came back. All of them were visions. Now, some of you are thinking are 2 Corinthians with Paul. We'll get to that in a moment. All of them are prophetic visions. Paul says when he was caught up in 2 Corinthians 12, he spends three verses 
three verses talking about his vision and gives practically no details. He even says, I don't even know if I was in the body or out of the body or if it was in the body or out of the body. What does that mean? I may have just had a vision. I don't know that I was left the body as a near-death experience. He says, it could have just been a vision. The Apostle Paul writes a third of the New Testament says, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what even to write. I don't even know how to put into words what I saw. Gives vague details about what he saw. Most of the visions of heaven only give details about the throne of God, which is truly the central fixation of heaven. When Isaiah stood before God, what was his only thing he was aware of at first? His sin and his brokenness before a holy and just God. Many will also point to the passage in Revelation about having having streets of gold and other precious materials used as building materials. However, in my opinion, when you read these verses in context, you discover this is speaking of the new Jerusalem, the new city of God, and the new earth. It is not speaking of heaven. Now, could heaven have streets of gold if new Jerusalem is streets of gold? It may, but that's not what Revelation teaches. Revelation says new Jerusalem has streets of gold. And so again, I'm not trying to like bust anybody's bubble. You might be like, oh, there's no streets of gold. Why even go? That's a bust. I'm saying let's look at this book, see what it actually says, and then I'll allow that to form our thinking about the heaven that the author of this book created. How dare we tell God what heaven should look like? Or how dare we critique his heaven? It's amazing to me. What is clear in the Bible about heaven, listen now, is the majesty and wonder of God and his holiness. Those that write about their visions of heaven are fearful, in awe, shocked, and put to silence by what they see. Think about that. Authors of the Word of God that commonly receive revelation from God see a vision of heaven and are left in awe and shock and in silence. They're in fear even in some cases, falling on their face before a holy and just God. But that's not the heaven we read of in these books, is it? In fact, most of these books that I listed for you contradict each other. So why do we read them? Why did 7 million copies of that book read, sold, purchased? I truly believe we read them because just as much as we believe this life is all about us, we expect the next life to be all about us. After all, God made heaven for me, and it's basically an eternal vacation where angels serve me. Think about this for a moment. Why do you want to go to heaven? Don't answer out loud. But think on that thought for a moment. What's the church answer? I want to see Jesus. I want to see my Savior, and I pray that's true for you. But there are so many that want to go to heaven because they truly believe it's just a chance to kick back in paradise and do nothing. It's an eternal vacation, and after all, I do deserve it anyway. I mean, it's all about me. It's all about what I get. When you compare these common, in my opinion, fictional books to this book about what these authors experience, there is a vast difference. And now we have to ask a question, which one do we believe? Which one do we take to heart? Which one do we bank on? Which one do we tell other people about? 
Because here's the thing. If something goes against this book, my opinion is it's wrong and this is right. Well, come on, Pastor. What, just because it doesn't say it in there doesn't mean it's not true. Well, here's my point. If what's in those books contradicts this, then it isn't true. Yes, this book doesn't say necessarily the, the you know, equations in algebra or certain terms and medical things and all these things that we have wisdom of. I understand that. What I'm saying is when it comes to the place called heaven and someone wants to teach me about heaven and tell me they experienced going to heaven and then came back, in my opinion, it should line up with the one who wrote the book about his heaven. So what do we do with all this information? The truth is, the details aren't that important. The most important aspect of heaven will be the presence of our Father and Savior. Do you know in all these books, do you know what's missing in the Word of God and these books? These books are fanciful and childish. Illusions of sitting on Jesus' lap and angels singing to us. There's no fear of God in these books. There's no awe of the Holy Spirit and, and what God is doing. There's no awareness of sin. There's no fear before a holy and just God. There's no talk of any of that. And even when it is included to, it's already in here, so we don't need them. I don't need somebody to write a book about heaven. It's been done. Do you know what the central focus of heaven is? His presence. Do you know why we live this life? For him. Do you know why we're going to be in eternity with him forever? To glorify him. But here's the truth. That doesn't sit well with some of us. Some of us feel like, oh man, I don't know. I mean, that just sounds like a lot of work. Man, if, could you imagine the moment you lay eyes on Jesus? Can you imagine the moment that you see your Savior who gave himself for your sins and you've been washed clean? Can you imagine the first time you fall before his throne and praise him with thousands and thousands of angels? Can you imagine the day when every tribe and every tongue and every language shouts praises to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Lamb of God is magnified and exalted by all of creation? Man, I don't need to know anything else. All I need to know is that he'll be there and that by his grace, I can be there with him forever. We know it's a place of beauty. We know it's a place of wonder. We know it's a place of peace and rest. But it's also apparently a place where we serve the king. And man, that's how I want to spend my eternity. And I think the problem with most of us, some of us, myself included at times, is the reason we don't want to think about having being a place of serving the king is because we don't want to live our lives serving the king. So why would I want to spend my eternity doing that? But if it's all about him, man, that's what matters. I'm always amazed that when the Bible is vague or silent on an issue, we will develop all types of descriptions and opinions about that topic, which we do with heaven. The Bible's vague about it. We'll come up with our own ideas about what it's like. And then we'll just mass produce it and put it out there. Man, we need to be focused on his glory and his presence. We should honestly, here's, I'm going to give you a little shortcut to the invitation. You ready? We're just going to praise him that by his grace we get to spend eternity with him. We all have questions about heaven. I've got tons of questions about heaven. I've got tons of questions about the details. But I'm just reminded in my spirit, why does it matter? 
Man, we spend so much time debating about what heaven is like and not like. We spend little time doing the work that we need to do to be seeing others join us in that heaven. Discipling others. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Serving them. Preaching Christ to every creature under the sun. That God would be magnified and glorified. Why did he create stars upon stars and all of the beauty and the wonder of the universe? Psalm says, so that his majesty is on display. That we could praise him for his goodness and his grace. I want you to join with us as we praise him for his grace in our lives. If I can encourage you this morning, we don't need anyone to write a book about their experience in heaven for it to be real or to believe that it's there. And we have a guarantee from the words of Christ that he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. We can trust what he said and we can trust in what he didn't say. And what I mean is this, Jesus told us all that we need to know about heaven. Most importantly, how to get there. Thomas said, man, I want to go. I want to know how can I get there. He said, there's only one way to my father in heaven and that's through me. And so the most important thing I can encourage you about heaven today is there's one way to get there, and it's through Christ. And as you dwell in that reality and you receive Christ as your Savior or you know him already, you can focus on that. You can look forward to that day. Man, I tell you what, I with great anticipation look forward to the day that I get to walk his streets, his heaven. I don't need all the details. I don't need to know every single thing. I don't even need to know all that we're doing. Because here's the thing. I'm with my Savior. And he will be glorified. And so if we want really good practice for heaven, I encourage us, let's start praising him that way now. Because believe it or not, the one thing that God wants to know about his heaven is it's not about you. It's about him. He's on display. Are we benefited from heaven? Absolutely. Do we benefit from his presence? Absolutely. Man, are we filled with joy and peace and the wonder of all these things? Absolutely. We know some things about heaven. The Bible seems to suggest that we will not be married in heaven, that there will be a different type of relationship between people. We understand there's differences in that regard, and that's fine to think on those things and to look into those things and to research those things. Do that. But man, don't get so caught up in it. That that becomes your fixation. Our fixation is Christ. What does Paul say? I need to be addicted to Jesus. And when we're addicted to him, we're addicted to what he would do in the world. And that's leading others to Christ, making disciples, so that more and more people will experience the wonder and joy of eternity with him in heaven. He says, I came so that we could have a relationship. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Simple invitation. I know we're kind of ending a little bit earlier than normal. But I want to do this. I want you to spend just some time today, whether they're in your seats or maybe you would come forward and bend a knee and just say, God, I want to praise you for nothing else in this moment than that your grace has redeemed me and forgiven me. And now I can spend eternity in your heaven, in your presence, to your glory. I want to encourage you. Let that be your dwelling place today. Focus on that. Because at the end of the day, it's all about him. And so would you bow with me in a word of prayer? As we open up for invitation, the band's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. And, and as they do, and, and as you're bowing your heads there where you are, 
Maybe in just a few moments you would come and just spend time with him. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? As you bow your heads right there where you are, I'm going to ask that you would begin to just realize how is it that you have eternal life? How is it that you have a guarantee of salvation, that you will spend eternity with him in heaven? Is it a hope? Is it a wish? Or is it a a knowledge, a guarantee that you have that Christ is your Savior, and by that alone, you have eternal life? Father, as we spend just this time before you, Lord, I know that it's a simple message, but I pray that it's one that radiates within us, that resonates in our hearts and minds. Lord, your heaven is a place of wonder and beauty, a place of sheer amazement, a place that when people saw it through Scripture, it was so difficult for them to describe what they were seeing. And Lord, I know that the details don't matter, but we have questions. We all have curiosities and thoughts, and those are fine. Lord, there is nothing wrong with wondering or maybe spending some time, maybe even daydreaming about what that would be like. It's all good. But Father, what matters more than anything is that how are we going to get to that heaven? How did you grant us access to your throne room? We are ushered in by grace. We are kept by grace. And so Father, as we dwell in that reality, may we just praise you this morning that wherever we go, this side of heaven or that, that your glory is there and we live to promote you and your fame. If there's anyone in this room right now that doesn't know Christ as their Lord and personal Savior, I pray, Lord, that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn away from their sin, confess it to you, ask to be forgiven, receive the eternal life that you're offering, and surrender their life to you as Lord and Savior. It's all by your grace through the cross. So, Father, for those of us that know Christ, that have been redeemed by your blood, I pray that we would, yes, Lord, dwell about thoughts on, dwell on thoughts of heaven, Lord, but more than that, that we would be excited about your mission that you've given to us, that we would make disciples of those around us and lead, lead to Christ those that are desiring to know you, that you would be glorified. And Lord, one day when we stand before you, what a day that will be. My small mind can't even comprehend. And so Lord, I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm just going to enjoy your presence. Thank you, Father, for all that you do and have done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Would you come? Would you bend a knee and just say, God, I want to praise you for your grace, that heaven is my eternal home. I just want to come and bow before you. Thank you for your presence. Would you respond there in your seats or here at the altar as we sing? Just praise him this morning that he has saved you by his grace and heaven is your home.